the famous uh, 16th century product of the English Reformation, the Book of Common Prayer, the, the, the prayer book of the Anglican Church. If you don't have one, you should try to procure one. The Book of Common Prayer is majestic and wonderful, and it, it says that when we assemble together, there are two great purposes for which we gather. To set forth God's most worthy praise and to hear his most holy word. To set forth God's most worthy praise and to hear his most holy word. Our text, Psalm 95, consists of those two great purposes for which we gather. Its language, Psalm 95, is quite familiar. But the relationship between the two parts is somewhat jarring. And I think that makes it provocative and instructive for us. And so we will then make two points. Worship, verses 1 through 7a. This is in the outline in the back of your bulletin. And the word, 7b through 11. Worship and the word. Two great purposes for which the church gathers. So first then, worship. The psalm, Psalm 95, is an invitation. It really is a call to public temple worship. And thus, there's this language in the psalm of summoning. Summoning us to worship in three different places. Come in verse 1, let us come in verse 2, and come in verse 6. The call. You know, this is one of the reasons we should try to be on time for church. Because that thing at the opening of worship that it starts with, the call to worship, that's not just Bob. That's God through Bob summoning you to his house. And you want to be here to hear that. Right? The Psalms are full of calls. Worship starts with a divine summons. Sometimes in America, I think people think, well, you get there for the sermon, you're good. No, no, the whole service is structured in order to renew us in our covenant relationship with God. The call's important. And so this text begins, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Lord one of those words that's because it's in the Bible thousands of times, we may not stop to ask ourselves, what is it? It's, it's the translation for the, what they call the tetragrammaton, the four letters that, that are translated into English as Yahweh, the unspeakable name. Yahweh means the covenant God of Israel, the God of the Exodus, the God who appeared to Moses. That's what Lord means when it appears in your Bible. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud, the text says, to the rock of our salvation. Both of these verbs, they're translated here, sing for joy and shout aloud. They're both exuberant. They're both exuberant. They command us, they summon us, they call us to produce volume in our praise. Volume. The first first word Sing for joy is a, is a call for a ringing cry, very similar to sounding an alarm or a cry for battle. 
And the second one, shout aloud, means, well, to shout loudly. <laughs> Reminds me of the old preacher who once said, you draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And in the Greek, this means draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's why they translate it that way. As shout aloud means shout loudly. Interestingly enough. And so we are to come, we are summoned to come in this mode. If not deafening, then surely vigorous praise with thanksgiving, extolling, lauding God with music and song. And so... To answer this call, beloved, it, it takes sustained effort. Right? We're not naturally given to this. We're sluggish. We need to work at this kind of singing. Like we would labor at our vacation. Uh, vac- our vocation. Some of us sing like we're laboring on our vacation. But I meant to say vocation. So, so we need to... There's a kind of... I think when we think of the Christian life... Even if you think of the disciplines of the Christian life, you might think of prayer or Bible study or even discipleship in broad terms. But we don't think of singing praise to God as a kind of discipline which requires sustained focus so that you're better at it this month than you were last month, this year than last year. It requires that kind of focus. This is a call which calls us to engage all the force and power and the intensity that the human body can muster. It's an embodied thing. And this is, this is because we're summoned before the Lord, the covenant God of the Exodus, who in his electing mercy has set his love upon you and redeemed you from bondage and from futility. This is because you come before the rock of your salvation. The rock who is your salvation, who acts to save the immutable, immovable, steadfast, faithful God who's heard your groans and your cries. And so if you look at the text beginning in verse 3, the psalmist expands a little further on the reasons for this call to praise. He says, the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Great is the Lord. And here, great is used twice. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. The praise must match the object. I mean, that's one of the basic thrusts of all the Psalms. The the kind of praise we give must match the object we're praising. And the God of Israel, the Lord, is incomparable. Meaning, Unable to be compared to anything. It's one of my favorite terms for God. In Isaiah, he says, rhetorically, God asks, To whom will you compare me? Or to what will you liken me? This this is not a God that you can start from the creation. Say, start from a human father. Or start from human love and then just extend it really high and really big and get to God. He can't be compared. 
He's not an improvement upon or a grade or two or ten or twelve above other beings. He can't be compared because he utterly transcends. He's infinitely above all the so-called gods of the nations, which are but idols. This God is singular, utterly unique. He belongs to no class. He's beyond categorization. His greatness is unsearchable, the psalm says elsewhere, the psalmist says. And this greatness which comes into view here in the text means he's great as king. He's a great king. You can see that in the text. That means he's great in this unrivaled, sovereign, royal mastery. Notice that the the psalm refers here to the act of creation. It's discussed next in verses 4 and 5. The act of creation is a public manifestation, an assertion, a visible word of God's royal majesty. Creation is a kingly act. It's a statement, a speaking forth of the Lord's greatness against all these supposed gods who are alluded to here in the text. The pagan deities. These ancient Near Eastern gods who created by fighting with one another. Or they created by sexual encounters. Or they created by having to go to battle with the forces of chaos. Not so, the psalmist is saying, the great God. The king above all gods. He creates without effort, without conflict, by fiat, by speech, by let there be light. And there was light. And this is why, in a text like this, which has already mentioned the, the God of the Exodus, it moves right from there to creation. Well, you know, you know what happened at the Exodus? This God defeated the nature gods of Egypt. The, 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 and he defeated them through the forces of creation. That's what the plagues are about. It's about God decreating Egypt, mocking their alleged nature gods. So, this is the God, the great king, the unrivaled one. And the text says, in this one's hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. This is a a lovely feature of Hebrew poetry called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. M-E-R-I-S-M. I think it's one of the blanks in your bulletin. I can't. Amerism. And amerism is where two extremes are used. Here, the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain peaks. And of course, what it means is, and you, you, you probably picked this up instinctively, it means the two extremes and everything in between. It's sort of like saying from head to toe. Amerism is a poetic way of saying he's sovereign over all things. The depths of the earth are his. The peaks of the mountains are his. You have this like vertical merism, and then it's followed by a horizontal one. The sea is his, and his hands form the dry land. He's sovereign in height and depth and length and breadth. Notice that the, the text draws attention to the hands, the hands which formed all things. 
are the hands which hold all things. There's nothing left for any other so-called God to claim. And so this summons continues in verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. We should note two, two things here. First, notice how this vigorous call for rejoicing and volume, it goes hand in hand somehow with deep reverence and humility. Deep reverence and humility. Those who sing loudly bow down and kneel. And this, by the way, is why churches should have kneelers, but I will not belabor that now. The very word worship carries within it the idea of prostration. The word means, essentially, to bow oneself down. So we have, these days, churches which are raucous, they're vigorous and loud. And we have churches which are reverent, they're traditional and reserved. What we need are churches that are raucous and reverent. And that's what Psalm 95 is about. It's a call to volume and vigor that's coupled with let us worship and bow down, let us kneel. And we kneel here before the one who's called the Lord our maker. Our maker. Which could be referring to creation, but more likely it's transitioning to the idea of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, as the one who formed and made Israel as a nation. Because that's clearly where the text goes in verse 7. For he's our God. He's our God. We're the people of his pasture. This is lovely language, as familiar as it is. What it is doing is evoking the very heart that God has for you, the heart of the covenant. I will be your God, God says. You shall be my people. I will be your shepherd. You shall be my flock. All of this worship and summoning is to this end. So that you can enter into more fully into this relationship. Notice the shepherding images here. The people of his pasture. The flock of his care or the sheep of his hands. In the ancient world and in Israel included. The king, the king was considered the shepherd of the nation. He was like a fatherly guardian and defender of the people. And so when we say here that the Lord is our shepherd, in this context we mean he's our gracious king. The one who, as the the last phrase of verse 7 puts it, takes us under his care, his sovereign care. And so not only is creation a royal act, God's shepherding of you is a royal act. He shepherds you as king. And that's what we need. That's the kind of pastor you need, right? God is your pastor, but he's a royal pastor, a sovereign pastor. So in the logic of the psalmist, the hands which hold the depths and the heights, the hands which form the sea and the dry land, those hands shepherd and hold and form and defend you. 
The one who's above us, above us in his greatness, is near us in his goodness. And this psalm is a ringing affirmation of that. And so that's worship. The second point here, that's worship. The second point is the word. And so if you look at Psalm 95 or you listen to it being read today, um, what happens to this psalm from the end of verse 7 to the conclusion can really strike one as jarring and even somewhat out of place. Come, let us worship. Let us sing. Let us bow down. The Lord is our shepherd. We're the sheep of his pasture. And then there's this, this whole joyous summons is interrupted, if you will. At least it appears to be interrupted by this very stark and severe warning. And, and it is quite startling. You're reading along and you don't quite expect it. In fact, it has puzzled commentators for for many, many, many hundreds of years, the transition in verse 7. But it's not inappropriate. I think there's a deep logic to it. So you have this song. It's roughly like our public worship here. It moves from praise and singing to a posture of reverence and preparation and finally to hearing the voice of God, the Creator, Redeemer. That's the flow of the psalm. That's the general flow of the way the church has worshipped for ages. And there's a a reason for that. Because if God is this great king, he's your shepherd. How does he care for you? How does he pastor you? Well, he does it. How does he govern his flock? By speaking. He speaks. His word, Calvin was fond of saying this, his word is the royal scepter. Of his kingdom. His speech is the king's proclamation. And so, this abrupt shift in tone in the, in the psalm is a reminder that worship, public worship, which is what Psalm 95 is about, for all of its you know, unquenchable gladness, it's a delight, it's a, it's a glad joyful thing, it is yet a dangerous place to come here. For the word of God is ever active and living. And that word is purifying you and renewing you or you're resisting it. But it is never doing nothing. Jesus is not inert. He is not absent. He is not having any uh, nullification of the relevance and the power and the action of his word. He lives and he speaks and his word acts and he brings it to bear on us and it is doing stuff. And so in the middle of this exuberance, we get a warning today. If only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We don't like this sort of both andness, do we? Like we either want joyful Christianity <laughs> And then there are some people who have a temperament which, are, which is always focused on the judgment and the warning and the judgment and the warning. Or there are people who think you can't possibly have both things together. Except they're together everywhere in Scripture. I like this aspect of Christianity. I'm not so fond of that one. I think if you emphasize this, you can't emphasize that. Part of our maturity is getting to see that these are all false dichotomies. It'd be like saying it's impossible to be God and man in the same person. 
Right? At the very heart of the Christian faith is a fundamental paradox that brings together things that we think are incompatible in Jesus Christ. And Scripture is doing this over and over and over again. If God is merciful and love, he won't judge us. Except the cross says he saves us through judgment. And so we, we somehow can have all of the liberty and all of the freedom and all the gladness and all of the joy and yet be a people bent down in reverence who are being warned, don't harden your heart. And that's what this psalm is about. And that's why commentators have found it so jarring. Notice the text says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Every time God speaks, every time scripture is read or proclaimed, it makes the time today. The today of this text, the word of these last days, the day of salvation, which nonetheless can become a time of hardening. And you get this warning drawn from Israel's history in the wilderness. The text mentions uh, Meribah, which means quarreling, and Massah, which means testing. These events recorded in the Pentateuch, they, they, they recall Israel's grumbling and their complaining and their doubting that the God of the Exodus could still provide for them. And yet it's clear, if you look at the psalm, that it's not just those couple of isolated incidents which is in view here. It was, in fact, verse 10 says, verse 10, the whole 40 years, the whole wilderness generation that God was angry with and of which he said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. It's hard for us to imagine this, is it not, to have seen the exodus? To have known of the Exodus, to have been that close to the Exodus, to have seen the provision in the wilderness, and still to have hardened one's heart, to continually crave another miracle. Just one more miracle, God, or grumble about God's providences. These are people, notice it's their hearts that go astray. Their hearts go astray. They are not allowing the word to order their interior lives. And so the disobedience of this whole generation is in view. And of that generation, God swore an oath. An oath in his just wrath, saying, they shall never enter my rest. Is that not, again, just to, not to beat a dead horse, is that not a strange way for a psalm which opens the way this psalm opens to end? I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is an oath. Uh, from numbers after the spies return with their faithless report, saying, we'll never be able to take the land of Canaan. And with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, that whole generation dies in the wilderness. God swore an oath. And their children would inherit the land. And so, it's important to see this. They shall not enter my rest means here, they shall not enter the peace and the blessedness of the promised land. That wilderness generation is not going to enter Canaan. They're not going to enter God's rest. So there's something important here, and I think much of the significance of the text for us depends on seeing this correctly. Perhaps, surprisingly, this warning from the wilderness 
about not entering the rest of the land. Now, now think of this. It comes in this psalm to an Israel already in the land. That's real important to pick up if you want to follow the logic and the challenge of Psalm 95. Israel's already in the land. What does this warning mean? In fact, the warning comes hundreds of years after Joshua had already led them into Canaan. And this this means that the rest of God is only represented by only pointed to by the land. Right? The land is what we call a type or a shadow. It points forward to the eternal Sabbath rest of the people of God in the new creation. That's why you can actually address a people in the land and say, you won't enter the land. You won't enter my rest if you harden your heart. Because the land is a type. It points forward. It's a dim picture of this coming glory of the new heavens and the new earth. In the words, you might remember, the words of the book of Hebrews, where in chapters 3 and 4, now our New Testament lesson came from a a section of this this morning. This very warning, this warning, do not, if if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This warning occurs in chapter 3 and 4 in the book of Hebrews five times. Five times that verse is cited in about a chapter and a half in the book of Hebrews. And there the author says, look, if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua brought them into the land. If Joshua had given them rest, then David would not have spoken of another rest, still future to Israel. I know this can be a little difficult, but it is important to get it. The land is what theologians call a typical or typological inheritance. Typological inheritance. Meaning it's an inheritance. Yes, Israel inherited the land, but it's a type. It's not our final inheritance. It's a picture, a pointer to, a, to another indestructible, everlasting inheritance. Because we know what happened, don't we? The Israel that read Psalm 95, they were dispossessed from this land. Even this typological inheritance, they lost it. All of a sudden, Psalm 95 has become really serious. It becomes a really deadly serious psalm immediately at verse 7. And what finally happens is the shepherd king, the creator redeemer of this text, he becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ who finally does what Israel failed to do. Israel, we must remember, in one sense, the whole story of the Old Testament is a story of perpetual, repeated, pervasive failure. I mean, it's a wonderful story in many ways about God's electing love, but it's an awful story of of Israel's resistance, of its failure to be able to do what God asked it to do and thus losing its inheritance. And then one comes and does what Israel failed to do. He conquers in the wilderness. This is why the gospel lesson today was Matthew 4 and the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Because Israel failed in the wilderness and God swore they wouldn't enter his rest. Jesus comes into the wilderness. He resists the serpent. 
He refuses to tempt God or to grumble or to test God. Jesus refuses to crave signs and wonders. He heeds the voice of the Father and his 40 days of obedience in the wilderness undoes Israel's 40 years of disobedience. You can see this by a careful reading of Matthew's gospel where Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is the new Israel who redoes Israel's history in the righteous way. And he then, Jesus, secures for you not just the land, not not a plot of real estate, but the inheritance, your inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth, the glory of the new creation. It's secured for you by the obedience of the greater Joshua. And so, remarkably even, for all of the full consolation of this gospel, This warning, though, still stands for us who are in Christ. As I mentioned, Hebrews 3 and 4 cite this warning five times of the New Testament church. God still says to us, to you and me, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. You can lose your inheritance. God will not lose his people he will not, the new covenant will come to glorious fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. But you can be lost. And I could be lost. We can harden our hearts. We are in an important sense, and you can see this again in Hebrews 3 and 4. Even though we're in Christ, we are still in the wilderness. The reason Hebrews 3 and 4 spend so much time with the church on this passage is because the author says to them, look, you're still pilgrims. You're still strangers. You have no lasting city here. You're still looking for the city which is to come. Yes, you've you've obtained your inheritance in part in Christ now, but you haven't obtained it fully. And so we're still exposed to danger. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. We're still exposed to danger. Don't harden your heart. You can drift. You can slide away. You can be seduced easily. And, and, And the... Um, the dreadful thing about this is drifting people usually don't know they're drifting. Often until it's too late. So what is, what is the writer to the book of Hebrews? And again, if you're, if you're thinking, why does he keep referring to the book of Hebrews? Let me just state it again. Because this psalm is cited, well, just that one verse is cited five times in Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 are an extended New Testament commentary on Psalm 95. And the writer of Hebrews says, he says this. Here's what we need to do. We must pay much closer attention, he says, to what we have heard. it's It's not that we have to hear new things. It's not that we need novelty. It's that there's a lot of stuff that we've heard and 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 we've heard, but we don't pay any attention to it anymore. That's the struggle of the Christian life, is it not? Paying attention to the stuff that you've heard 150 times before. We must pay much closer attention to it. You know, there's a kind of logic in Hebrews which says... In a sense, our position is much more glorious, right? The new covenant's more glorious, more wonderful than the old. We're in a more magnificent position than Israel was. We have Christ. They just have the shadows, the types. We have the substance. We have a better covenant with better promises and better glory. And yet, and yet, 
the warnings in the book of Hebrews are more severe than anything you can find in all of Scripture. Again, both things are in the book of Hebrews. The grandest celebration of the glory of the new covenant in Christ with the sharpest kind of dreadful warnings. Right, The writer to the book of Hebrews can say, they died on the testimony of two witnesses under the sanctions, those very harsh sanctions of the Mosaic law. And then he says, how much worse punishment do you think we will deserve if we reject the spirit of Christ and trample on the blood of Christ? The greater privileges and the greater glory come with greater responsibility and thus they come with greater warnings. I'm always baffled by people who don't like some of these things in the Old Testament. And I say, you do know, of course, that there are things much more severe than that in the New Testament, right? Usually they don't. There's a caricature out there that the God of the Old Testament is mean and harsh and the God of the New Testament is loving and kind. One remedy for that is read the book of Hebrews. But another remedy is don't pit these things. God is love, of course. He is love. But that doesn't mean that when he pours his glorious love out out on us, that we cannot, that we are not in a position where we can reject it, where we can we can be, in a sense, coming face to face with the glory of God ups the ante of your life. Right? That's why coming here is both a glorious and a joyful thing and a dangerous thing. Right? That's why what Jesus could say in his ministry. Of the towns that rejected him, what could he say? He could say, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. Because you didn't recognize the day of your visitation. You had the Son of God in glory in your midst, and you rejected him. You think Sodom and Gomorrah is a problem? Woe to you, Jesus says, of these cities that reject him. So... You have a text. It's taken us from the heights of loud ringing praise down through reverence and bowing and kneeling to listening to God's word in such a way that we don't harden our hearts. And you know why we need this? Because we're pilgrims and the pilgrimage to the promised land always passes through Meribah and Massa. It always passes through places where, where, we, are if, where we are subject to bitterness and quarreling, and grumbling, and unbelief. The the pilgrimage that we're on, beloved, is fraught with lots of ways that we can be hardened. It's just the reality of life. And the pilgrimage can be shipwrecked. Chesterton has this, this wonderful saying where he says, there are an infinity of angles at which a man falls. There is only one at which he stands. There's an infinity of stuff that can derail a pilgrim. And so what does Hebrews say? It says, see to it. See to it that not one of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now remember, he's addressing Christians. He's saying, be careful that you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart that's turning. Make sure you're turning to God, not away from him. And and we can help one another on this because pilgrims need the help of other pilgrims. And how, how can you help? Well, Hebrews says you are, you are to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. You know, when Hebrews says that, it's evoking the today from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. And today is this whole time we're in. 
the time of our journey. Your brethren need you to encourage them, to put courage into their hearts. Now, you can't get courage into a person's heart if you're going to skirt these warnings. But once we've heard these warnings, then we need, then we need the encouragement. We've been calibrated to reality. We can encourage one another. And we need this because, Hebrews says, otherwise we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a monstrous, deceitful, many-headed thing. It will conquer you if you face it in your own strength. And it will even conquer you if you try to face it in your own strength in Christ apart from your brothers and sisters. You need encouragement. You need to be an encourager. Because everyone in here is a pilgrim and everyone's at risk. Hebrews says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, right? this promise of entering this rest still stands, we have to fear lest we fall short of it. We have to strive to enter that rest. It's very much like the beginning of the text. You're going to have to exert yourself to praise God the way he wants you to praise him. To, to bring the kind of volume and discipline and focus. And you do that because praise is the place you're nourished and refreshed on your pilgrimage. And on your pilgrimage, you're striving. You're focused. You're, you're pressing forward. And so as pilgrims, we need this assembly. This psalm is about this assembly. What else does that same book of Hebrews say? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, all the more so as you see the day, the day of your coming rest drawing near. We need both the loud singing and the holy reverence of this place. We need the encouragement of our brethren. And we need, above all, the incarnate creator Yahweh of this text, who's been tested, who's triumphed in the wilderness, who is like you in every way except for sin, who now, as high priest, sympathizes with your weaknesses. He's a great and merciful high priest, evoking the great king of this psalm. He's our forerunner, meaning the first pilgrim. And he leads those who hold him fast to their glorious inheritance. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Amen. Let us rise. Let us respond to the word of God. Let us confess our faith together through the Apostles' Creed, which is printed in your bulletin. Please stand.